Hello again, and welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org, and on iTunes at College Radio. Today is Wednesday, May 23rd. 23rd? <laughs> 23rd already? 2012, and I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and my guests today are William Todd Schultz and Hope Edelman. First up is William Todd Schultz. He's professor of psychology at Pacific University in Portland, Oregon, and has written numerous um, on numerous figures such as Sylvia Plath, Oscar Wilde, and Jack Kerouac. He's editor of the Handbook of Psychobiography and blogs for Psychology Today magazine. He was on more than a year ago for his book, An An Emergency in Slow Motion, The Inner Life of Diane Arbus, and is back today to talk about Tiny Terror, Why Truman Capote Almost Wrote Answered Prayers, published by Oxford. And uh, he goes by Todd, so uh, that's how I'm going to address him, and hopefully you'll remember his, his name, William Todd Schultz, when you look for his book. Hi, Todd. Hi, Barbara. <laughs> Good to have you back. <laughs> I, you know, Todd will be a lot more uh, normal for me because I'm not used to being called William ever. <laughs> you'll, you'll wait. You know, I'll say, hey, so William, and you'll sit there. And, okay, so you're talking. Yeah, I'll just stare off into the distance <laughs> waiting for somebody else to reply to the... <laughs> You know, I, I'm I'm so curious to hear you talk about this book because I remember when the excerpts from um, Truman Capote's unfinished novel *Answered Prayers* were published. I think it was in Esquire, and it caused such uproar. And all of his friends, um, at least the friends he wrote about in that book, sort of disowned him. And um, that I, I don't know why I so remember it. I guess I've always sort of been a fan of Capote's. But we talk a little bit about that and why you wrote the book. Well, I wrote the book because I've always been a little mesmerized by Capote, both as a writer and a person. Um, It was the first psychobiographical essay I ever wrote way back in 1986 when I was getting my Ph.D. at UC Davis. And my dad had been reading, my dad was a big, still is a big reader, and he had been reading those excerpts uh, as they came out in Esquire. And so I talked to him about them and read them myself, and it just, it was, it was a scandalous affair, him tattling on all these trillionaires that he had become friends with and essentially destroying friendships that were, in fact, pretty important to him. And so it was a perplexing psychological puzzle, just why he would do that and what were his motives and why would someone sort of self-destruct in a literary way by um, writing these incredibly scabrous, scalding, um, real-life, thinly disguised accounts of the rich and famous people he'd, he'd been hanging out with. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, and and as far as psychobiography goes, uh, I, I think until... Um, your agent, Betsy Lerner, alerted you to me um, with the Arbus book that you came on the show with. I don't think I'd ever heard that term, psychobiography. You want to say a little bit about that? Sure. It's been around, I mean, it's been around since the Greeks, basically. The histories written by the Greeks have some psychological, psychobiographical elements. But in its modern form, it's been around for about 100 years. 
Uh, its roots are chiefly in Freud and psychoanalysis, but they are no longer. I mean, people when people hear the word psychobiography, they always think it's all Freudian, but it's not. Um, not so much, at least, anymore. Basically, what it is is a way of doing psychology, chiefly, and you make use of current psychological theory and research uh, from personality science, you know, scientifically sound, validated research uh, to make sense of historically significant individuals. So mainly they're written on artists and political figures, and mainly the people are no longer living, although there are some psychobiographies that are done on people who are still living. I wrote an essay, at least, on a friend of mine, Catherine Harrison, the author of The Kiss. Mm-hmm. She's very much alive. But uh, So the goal is to just understand people and mainly to understand the subjective life history, biographical origins of the art that they make or the political stances that they take or what have you. And it's not its not as if when I do psychobiography, I think, I mean, I would be a moron to think this. It's not like I think that I'm providing the authoritative, definitive solution to the question of, for instance, why did Truman Capote write answered prayers? I'm just, I'm just contributing one piece of the puzzle, the psychological piece. But there's, of course... I would never deny that there's, of course, a whole historical piece, uh, you know, a sociological piece, an anthropological piece, all kinds of other vectors that come into it. And I'm just zeroing in on the psychological vector because I think, you know, people create things to express feelings or ideas that are intensely important to them. Otherwise, they wouldn't go to the trouble of creating things like writing a book, which is a monumental endeavor, as you know. Mm-hmm. So I sort of try to ask, why was this such an important thing for this artist to do? Why, like with Arbus, why was this freak's theme so compelling for her? What was it about her as a person that drew her to that subject matter? And with Capote, it's basically the question, why would he torpedo and blow up all of these friendships that he'd had for, you know, dozens of years uh, and uh, get himself essentially blacklisted from cafe society? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, that's just so interesting as you said, why we are drawn, why writers and artists are drawn to the subject matter we're drawn to. And, um, you know, it's fascinating. And, and I know, you know, those of us who do write or, or do some sort of art, um, worry about sort of self-analyzing too much. You know, I mean, it's really interesting when people analyze, but it's like you can, you can analyze yourself to the point where you, you perhaps, at least with writers I know, won't write because, or won't write anything too personal or, or think they're disguising, you know, their inner life by writing fiction. You, right. you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you're an artist or a writer or whatever, I don't really think it's your, I don't think most of them feel like it's 
their job to interpret what they're doing as they go along. They're just more concerned with making the art, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's left to people like me, I guess, or other art critics or, or what have you to interpret how it fits in a canon or what it means and how it's unique or how it's powerful or whatever. I think it's just so much work to do the art that that's all you can think about. And if you pause too many times to, like, think about why am I writing about this or whatever, <laughs> it would just, first of all, waste a lot of time. And I don't I don't know if it would, it, it might get in the way of whatever vein you're tapping. Sure, you know? sure. Yeah. You are listening to Writers on Writing, and I am with William Todd Schultz, author of Tiny Terror, Why Truman Capote Almost Wrote Answered Prayers, published by Oxford. Um, I don't know. I don't remember who, who said this, but I recall a famous quote by somebody who said um, that it's a writer's job to stir things up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Could have been Capote. He was, he was a prodigious stirrer of things up. Well, you know, where is the line? Because I think, you know, I think, you know, writers do um, sort of make apparent what, you know, most people don't want to really examine and or deal with. And yet there's that line that you cross where everybody hates you for doing it. Right. He was, he professed at least to be bewildered by the reaction. He, I mean, his his comment was, what did they think they had in their midst? I mean, yes, I was hanging out on their yachts, and I was going to their cocktail parties, and I was their court jester at dinner parties, entertaining all the wealthy guests, and, you know, but in the end, I'm a writer, so I was watching and uh, note-taking in my head, and how could they think that one day maybe this wouldn't be used in some kind of fictional form? Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, yeah, he was. I think that he didn't answer prayers, though. That's a little bit. I don't know how this even flew uh, legally, but he, in a lot of cases, he did not use pseudonyms at all. He used actual names. Mm-hmm. So. And a lot of what he says, just so your listeners understand, a lot of what he says about these people is vicious and extremely nasty and R-rated. And so, uh, you know, it's one thing to say, well, what did they think they had in their midst? I was a writer and maybe someday I would write about this. But but if you did that, maybe you'd do it in a discussion more disguised form. Sure. In a lot of cases, however, with him, there was no disguise at all. Like he called Jackie Kennedy in the book a female impersonator impersonating a female impersonator. <laughs> or <laughs> he, called, he said the Kennedy men like to pee on every fire hydrant they come across. Or, you know, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of like, he had a lot of nasty words for other literary figures too, like Faulkner and, and others. But Tennessee Williams as well. Um, so there was something a lot angrier and nastier going on, it seems like to me. Right, by not disguising or fiction, really fictionalizing. Yeah, just foregrounding it yeah. so much and like putting these names right there who everybody knows. And even the people who he used pseudonyms for within the, that inner circle, everyone knew who they were. And everyone knew... Um, the derivation of the stories he was telling, and so uh, when those people read 
the excerpts as they appeared in Esquire, you know, they were under no, um, they had no confusion about what he was revealing, even though it was, uh, you know, at a kind of shallow level disguised. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love this book. I just, I, I find it fascinating going into sort of the psychology of of uh, of the the people you go into. The, the the Arbus book was wonderful, and this one, Tiny Terror, is as well. And it's interesting what you say in it about Capote, in that he, um, even though cold, in Cold Blood made him a millionaire, basically, he still felt like an outsider. I mean, he was included in society. Now he was, you know, he didn't come from society, but now he was one of them apparently. But he never was. Yeah, you know, his history in uh, Monroeville, Alabama is basically, you know, poor white trash, and he was, he grew up with, as everybody knows, he grew up with, you know, spinsterish aunts, and he was abandoned by his mother and father. Um, and so I think when he finagled his way into these, um, into Jet Set Society, you know, he wasn't from that world, and true, he was super famous and everything, and he was on all the talk shows, and everybody loved him. He was endlessly entertaining and witty and kind of a modern-day Oscar Wilde figure, um, but he wasn't part of that crowd. And as he said in different interviews at different points, he he always kind of detested the rich people and his sense was that they really didn't accomplish anything in a lot of cases on their own. They were just simply rich. And uh, I think in some basic way they repulsed them, repulsed him. And so he, because he felt like this outsider, um, it was probably easier to take them on when he finally did. And maybe he was burning the bridge almost on purpose just to rid himself of their involvement in his life. I mean, one thing I go into in the book is lots of the different possible motives for why he did it, and that's mm-hmm. probably, at a, at a kind of shallow level, that's probably one of them. Yeah. Just to, just kind of a bridge-burning bid for independence from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating uh, all that you go into. And, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you talk about that and how he, how the movie was so different from the book. Um, you know, the book was much darker. And, and very. you know, and how he was very upset with the movie version of his book. Yeah, it was cool to learn when I was researching the book that I thought it was kind of neat that he thought that the best person to play Holly Golightly would have been Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. if there was going to be a remake, of course. I mean, And um, he also wanted Marilyn Monroe. Um, I guess with Jodie Foster, he felt like Jodie Foster had this toughness and independence that Holly Golightly had, and with Marilyn Monroe there was this fragility and woundedness. So maybe it would have been best to have somebody who is a perfect combination of Jodie Foster and Marilyn Monroe. Hmm. But, um, yeah, the book is a lot darker. It ends on a certainly far less hopeful (laughs) note and the Hollywood version with that (laughs) kind of annoyingly sentimental Moon River song that's always kind of coming through the film. It's just... And he 
didn't like um, Audrey Hepburn. He just thought she was absolutely wrong for the part. Mm-hmm. He liked her as a person, but he just didn't think she was right for the part at all. Mm-hmm. And one thing that was cool to discover, too, as I was writing the book, is that um, in a lot of ways, Holly is a ringer for Capote's mother. And I go into in the book a lot of the ways in which they match, but one really obvious one that's easy to mention quickly is that uh, the, the main character finds out at some point towards the end of the novella that Holly Golightly's real name is Lula May, and she's from the South. Mm-hmm. And his mother's name, Capote's mother's name, was Lily May, and of course she was from the South, too. So when he threw that in there, I think he did that obviously deliberately to kind of almost like an inside joke to himself to kind of make it clear that in a lot of ways Holly Golightly just in her flightiness and her undependability and the fact that she never stuck around and that she couldn't be counted on, this kind of free spirit quality that she had was a lot like Capote's mother who was in and out of his life and, you know, really fragile and intermittently suicidal and taking off all the time, you know, when he really needed her, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Your your work is fascinating. These books are fascinating, and I and I hope there's more coming. Is, is there going to be well, another? Right now I'm working on... Um, I'm trying my hand at straight biography just because, I don't know, It's this, this would be for another show, but it's just something that I've mm-hmm. felt drawn to, although I can't tell you how monumental amount of work it is piecing together all the details of a life. But uh, my next book is going to be on the musician LA, uh, Elliot Smith, mm-hmm. who... Um, died tragically down in L.A. in 2003, but he was just this amazing person, an incredible musical genius, and so I'm about halfway through that biography, and um, that's going to come out sometime in fall 2013, also through Bloomsbury, who did my August book. Mm. Well, you'll have to come back with that book. Uh, I'd be happy to. I'd love to. I'd be so excited. That would be great. Thank you so much for uh, coming back on the show. This t- this uh, half hour has gone way too quick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. That was uh, William Todd Schultz, and the book we were talking about is called Tiny Terror, Why Truman Capote Almost Wrote Answered Prayers, published by Oxford. And it was uh, the first book of, of this type that he published. Uh, the Arbus book um, came out afterward. And that's what he was on the show with. I, I believe there's a podcast up at uh, penonfire.blogspot.com. If you enter in his name, William Todd Schultz, in the search box, you should be able to find it. And if it's not there, email me at penonfire.earthlink.net, and I'll see what's up with that. We've been having some interesting podcast challenges. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we return, we will have Hope Edelman with us and... Uh, What else can I tell you except don't go anywhere? Stay with us and we'll be right back. Come back, baby 
see you go Come back, baby Let's talk it over One more time My heart's full of sorrow Mama aching tears Gone 24 hours, child Seem like a thousand years Come back, baby Let's talk it over One more time You know, little darling One more bad day Let's talk it over Before you go away Come back, baby Let's talk it over One more time If you do not like sex and you don't want to be in a relationship and you'd rather be alone and miserable and cry alone by yourself, then don't tune into our show on Fridays at 5 p.m. It's called The Chat Room, a show about sex and relationships with your hosts, Marie Stone, Elizabeth Zero, and Nathan Tang on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming online at KUCI.org, and podcast at KUCI Talk. Yeah, so uh, no party poopers allowed. (laughs) And it's awesome! I lost my mojo. You lost it? I lost it. Where'd it go? I don't know, but I found it. I found it on Writers on Writing. Writers on Writing? Wednesday mornings at 9. 9 a.m. in the morning. With Barbara DeMarco Barrett and Marie Stone? That's them. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. And welcome back to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. We're broadcasting from the University of California Irvine campus, and we're on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio and uh this show, along with many others, um, is podcast, so you can visit penonfire.blogspot.com and uh, enter in names of authors in the search box, see if we've done a show with them, or <laughs> go to writersonwriting.blogspot.com. We've done hundreds of shows, hundreds and hundreds, since uh, the show started in, gosh, it's been something like 13 years. So every week we're on with one or two uh, authors. Lots of shows. So anyway, 
Today, in the second half, we have Hope Edelman. She's author of five nonfiction books, the international bestseller Motherless Daughters, published in 16 countries and translated into 11 languages, Letters from Motherless Daughters, an edited collection of letters from readers, Mother of My Mother, Motherless Mothers, and The Possibility of Everything, her full-length memoir, um, set in Topanga Canyon, California, and Belize. Hope has lectured widely on the long-term effects of early parent loss. She attended the University of Iowa, earning a master's degree in creative nonfiction, one of the first of its kind. Since then, her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, Real Simple, Self, and the Iowa Review, among others. And she's co-author, along with Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez, of the new memoir, Along the Way, The Journey of Father and Son. Hi, Hope. Hi. Hi. So good to have you with us. Um, you know, you, I've been aware of you and your work for so long, and um, you were, uh, you know, I want to talk about about your books um, that came before along the way. But let's let's begin with that and talk about a little bit, you know, how the book came about. Oh, sure. So you're talking about motherless daughters, I imagine, which was my first book, or uh-huh. along the way. Or well, let's start with along the way. Okay. Um, well, this book came about very simply, um, the way that these books often come about. I got a phone call from my literary agent who knew that I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next after my memoir had been published. And she said, hey, you know, the, this book idea came across my desk. There, there's an agent looking for an author to pair with some actors, and um, I'll get back to you tomorrow. That's all she told me. And then I, um, when I got the phone call, she told me who they were and what the idea was, and seemed a little outside of the box for me because it was so different from anything I'd ever done before, but I was intrigued. So I I live in Topanga Canyon right near Malibu, and the guys live in Malibu. I drove up there to meet them. We liked each other a lot. We had a similar vision for the book, and uh, we decided to work together. Mm. I imagine if you didn't like them, (laughs) it would have been a whole different story. It could have been. You know, my friends who do this kind of work say that it can really go either way, and it all depends on what the principals or the authors are like. And these guys were just so warm and friendly from the very beginning. Had we not gotten along, I don't think I could have taken the job because the degree of time we needed to spend together and intimacy that we needed to share in order to get the the material for the book was would have been prohibitive with someone that I, I didn't want to spend time with. How much time in doing a book like this do you have to spend interviewing, and then how much other work do you need to do in terms of, you know, researching um, the you know your subjects really? Because you know my guess is that you were really the writer on the book, and they maybe edited your work. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I wrote the first drafts of all the chapters, and then we went back and forth on them. And towards the end, actually, Martin did quite a bit of writing himself. He's, he's a good writer and an mm-hmm. excellent editor. And um, we really worked as a team at the very end, you know, in the last month or two. Um, but it was hours and hours of interviews, and they were uh, releasing and promoting their movie The Way yes. at the same time, which is the story of a father who goes to retrieve his son's body in the Pyrenees in France and discovers that his son was planning to walk the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage route across northern Spain and died on the first day and decides to walk the route himself and take his son's ashes and scatter them along the way. That film was released in October, but they were heavily promoting it in September and October. So we we really had to work around their schedule and, and my schedule. 
Uh, I'm going to estimate that I did about um, maybe 30 or 40 hours of interviews with each of them. So that would be mm-hmm. 60 to 80 total. And there were thousands of pages of transcripts. I did a few interviews with the two of them together as well. And uh, and then I did a substantial amount of research to, to fill in the blanks. I spent a lot of time in the Malibu archives reading back issues of Malibu newspapers to see what had been going on there in the 1970s when Amelia was growing up. And mm-hmm. I watched uh, many of their films. I interviewed um, f- friends of the family and other people that they'd known in the past and and so it was, you know, it, but it was really was a collaborative effort. I mean, they, they participated a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, as a Martin Sheen fan, I, I loved the movie The Way. And, you know, when, the, when I heard about the book, I was so interested um, in why the book wasn't released around the time the movie was released. Oh, well, that was simply a timing issue. Uh-huh. Uh, the movie was already completed and edited when they decided they wanted to write a book. I see. So okay. they, you know, they didn't want to hold up the distribution of the movie, of uh-huh. course, and we couldn't write a book fast enough to get it out in yeah. time. So it actually came out quite close in time to the DVD, mm-hmm. which is nice because um, they're able to be sold together. I think Walmart might actually be selling them, you know, on the same display, and and it really does help to see the film and then read the book because the book has quite a few scenes of backstory that are behind the scenes about the making of the movie mm-hmm. that are easier to understand if you've already seen the movie. Right, exactly. You're listening to Writers on Writing, and I'm with Hope Edelman, who is author of many things, including Along the Way, The Journey of a Father and Son, and Motherless Mothers, and The Possibility of Everything, and so much to talk about within such a short amount of time. We'll have to get you down to a salon one of these days, so you can talk at length um, about about what you do hope. That would be terrific. But, you know, let's shift a little bit to your own work, and you seem to have a specialty or topic, which um, is family or mothers. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I started writing about mothers and daughters, specifically about daughters who lose their mothers and how it affects them for the rest of their lives because my own mother died when I was 17. And that was what gave birth to the book Motherless Daughters. And from there, I I continued writing about mothers and daughters, really, I I guess, all the way through. Even my memoir, The Possibility of Everything, is very much a a story about being a parent. Mm -hmm. So um, then the leap from there to writing about a father and son wasn't as large as I would have have imagined. so that made it actually made sense when I look back at it. But uh, my older daughter has asked me now not to write about her for a while. She's 14, and mm-hmm. she has a sense of privacy now, and, and I want to respect that. So I'm, um, I, though I will, I'm sure, still write about family, I, I will probably not be writing about parenting in, in the near future, or at least until she changes her mind. Mm-hmm. Um did did this specialty i mean i'm i'm guessing the specialty didn't come to you in any sort of planned way but mm-hmm. but found its way through your own just interest it did and it and very much because my first book well, i just wrote the book i needed to read i lost my mom when i was 17 and i went looking for a book about girls without mothers and there weren't any mm-hmm. all the books on mother loss seemed to assume that a woman would be in her 40s or 50s or later when it occurred so, uh, but over the years, I kept looking for the book and not finding it and started meeting other young women like myself who had lost mothers during childhood or their teenage years. 
and decided to write the book myself. And in order to understand what we had all lost, I first needed to understand what we had once had, and that sent me into the realm of mother-daughter research. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, what you just said about your your 14-year-old not wanting you to write about her, um, for now, does, you know, I, I know that a lot of writers, a lot of novelists and fiction writers will write about family and, and just disguise them or, you know, if they have a daughter, they'll make the kid of the protagonist a son or, or whatever and use a lot of the same sorts of things that are going on perhaps in their life mm-hmm. or what they're observing or uh, going through. So, you know, I, I'm, you know, my, my original question was, you know, the characteristics of a memoirist versus a fiction writer. And then when you said that, I, I thought, well, would you consider writing fiction? Oh, um, I might. I, I've tried, and I'm, I'm sad to report I'm not particularly <laughs> good at it, or maybe I just haven't found the right narrator yet. But I'm so much more interested in what happens in the real world, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's so much to write about that um, I haven't really felt the driving need to write fiction yet. But I might, I might. But, you know, I, I told my daughter, well, you know, there was, I had 32 years before you were born. There's plenty of material back there to mine. I was just at a nonfiction conference in Ashland, Ohio. We were talking about how one person could write about their adolescence forever by just coming at it from different angles and different points of view and different stories. And, and while I don't want to be a middle-aged woman obsessed with my own adolescence, I, I do have enough in 32 years before my daughter came along to occupy me for a while, I think. Well, that's interesting, too. I mean, just what you said in terms of, you know, you're, you're more interested in what happened. And um, it seems that, I mean, I hear, you know, we all hear the, the demise of the memoir, the demise of the novel, the demise of everything. But uh, what, what are your feelings about memoir? Because there are so many now, and... Right. It happens to be one of my favorite forms, so you know I hope it never goes away. But um, what do you think? I mean, do you do you see an endless need for memoir um, because we're we we all really do want to know other people's stories, or what do you think? Right. Well, I think that we all have an essential need to find roadmaps that will help guide us in living our own lives, and it's easier to find that, and perhaps even more interesting and exciting us for us to find that in, through the stories of other people's lives. And a memoir, when written well, has a cert- has a sense of universality, insofar that if you read Angela's Ashes, you probably weren't a child growing up in poverty in Limerick, Ireland, but you would be able to relate to feelings of deprivation or or the ability to triumph over adversity and that would give you perhaps hope or or courage in your own life. Um, I can say that as a teacher of nonfiction writing, because I've been teaching for more than 20 years, I don't, uh, I don't see any decline in people wanting to write memoir or trying to write memoir. I've seen shifts in the publishing industry over the years, um, first into memoir when many were published and probably some that perhaps weren't quite worthy of being published, maybe that didn't have that kind of universality but had a sensational story that that might sell copies. Uh, But I think what's happening is the pendulum swinging back now. I don't think we're going to see memoirs go off the market. I think there's just too much interest in it. But I think... We the standards the bar's gotten higher. Mm-hmm. It needs to be not just a good story, but a, a story beautifully told. It, it's it's harder to, to get a story that's beautifully told published unless there's a really compelling tale behind it. Um, but but certainly, I have you know dozens and dozens of students who all want to write their memoir, who all have the urge 
to commit their stories to paper. And I, I think a portion of just about anyone's life is worthy of a book. Um, that doesn't mean that everyone's able to write it, though. That step from desire to execution is, is a formidable one, and, and it's not for the faint of heart. Well, uh, along those lines in terms of finding the story um, and telling it beautifully, you know, this is something, as you said, that, that students grapple with, you know, what, where is the story and which story is worth telling? Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, most people do have a story and it's like finding that story and, and right. knowing how to present it. I mean, ha- what can you say about that? Oh, I just did a presentation on that at the conference in Ohio. And in fact, I'm teaching a whole workshop on that <laughs> June 2nd in Ohio about how to find the story or, or, or shaping a story from the facts of real life. Mm-hmm. Because real life is a glorious mess. Things don't happen necessarily in order. They don't make sense when they happen, only in retrospect. How do you know what's worthy of of a a narrative on paper? How do you know where to start? How do you know where to end? Um, I start by teaching students about the the basic shape of a story. Kurt Vonnegut has a hilarious but wonderful, I think, about four-minute clip on YouTube where he talks about the shape of a story and and he does it in very, very basic terms. I get much more elaborate than that with my students, but it's a good starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, you, the shape of a story is that something happens to change the world of the narrator, either for the better or the worse, usually the worse, and then they have to overcome that adversity to find happiness or joy or solve a mystery or answer a question or have an epiphany over time. And um, so I start with talking about narrative structure, and then we start isolating key scenes, what scenes are worth including or developing, and and then filling in between the scenes. And it's, it's it sounds a little formulaic, but it actually it's very artistic, and it's a beautiful process when you see the writers really come into their own. Hmm. Knowing what to keep and what to leave out. Um. <laughs> Selectivity, it's really the hallmark of memoir, isn't it? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and it's hard to know. Um, good readers are helpful. They'll say, you know, I think you're you're digressing here or going on for too long. You know, trusted readers, they don't have to be writers themselves. They just have to be good readers who are willing to be honest with you. But uh, it's it's really good at, in, at the beginning to have a sense of what message you want to convey, what your larger story is about, because events are not a story. Uh, just saying this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened, uh, That that. It's not really an, an artistically rendered narrative. It's what you make of the story, how you analyze it and interpret it, and what readers are able to take away from it that makes it a work of art. And that's what we all strive for, but, again, it's hard to achieve. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Writers on Writing, and I'm with Hope Edelman, author of Motherless Daughters and so many other things. Would you love to uh, read to us? We would love to hear you. Oh, I'd be happy to. Um I think I think I'll read to you a section from my memoir. Maybe okay. maybe just like the first couple of paragraphs. That's great. How about that? Cuz sure. that would give give a sense of what's going on. This is I should just say the story of a journey my husband and I took uh, right around um the the millennial turn in in December of 2000 we took our 3-year-old daughter to Mayan healers in the Central American country of Belize um in hoping to find someone who could help her cope with uh, what seemed to be a very um, malicious or malevolent imaginary friend. I know it sounds a little wacky, but it was a terrific trip, really life-changing. And so the book opens um, in Belize. We've uh, we've just arrived, and we are being taken to the first shaman. And this it, is the possibility of everything? This is the possibility of everything, okay. right. Okay. A ragged dirt road twists 
through six miles of rainforest in western Belize, linking the villages of Cristo Rey and San Antonio. If you make this drive the day after a heavy December rain, as my husband Uzi and I do, the road will still be gluey and ripe. Its surface will be the color and consistency of mango pudding. You might focus intensely on these two elements, mango and pudding, to divert your attention from how the white van you're riding in keeps sashaying across the slippery road. And you might look down at the three-year-old lying across your lap and think about how she is a child who loves mangoes and loves pudding, but that you have never thought to put the two together for her before. You might look at her and think, mango pudding, great idea. Let's find a way to make some tonight. Or you might think, if you will be okay, I'll make you mango pudding every night for the rest of your life. Or you might look down at her and just think, please, and leave it at that. Victor, our driver for this ride, maneuvers the 11-seat passenger van with more skill and less caution than I could safely manage. He ya he calls out as he deftly steers us out of a skid. Each time the van's back-end fishtails, I spring for the door handle. I don't know what I'm thinking. Grabbing the door handle in an unlocked car is only going to result in an open door on a muddy road. But when you're ricocheting around in the back of a van without seat belts, with a sick child lying across your thighs, the impulse is to lunge for something solid. I tighten my right arm around my daughter, Maya's waist. Everything's fine, I tell myself. She's going to be fine. I press my left hand against the window and watch the landscape stream by between my fingertips. The jungle grows flush against both sides of the road, tangled and pristine. The bulldozers of American expatriates chewing up the Caribbean coast haven't found their way back here yet. Fat, squat, kahune palms burst up from ground level like Las Vegas fountains spraying out of the forest floor. Thick serpentine vines encircle tree trunks like lush maple ribbons. The biodiversity here is astounding. I never imagined there could be so many different kinds of leaves in one place or so many shades of green. Mm. That's a natural stopping point, I think, I'll That's there. lovely. It's Thank lovely. You. I, I very much want to read this one now. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful country, and I knew so little about it before I went down there the first time. Mm. Now I've been back on research trips for the book several mm. times and really gotten to know the place. I, I love your use of language, and, um, I, and I, you know, you have repetition in there that's just beautiful. And um, the present tense, talk about why you wrote it in the present tense. Ah, that's a good question. Um, I chose to write this book in the present tense because of its immediacy and because I felt it would be a better experience for readers to take the journey with the narrator and not feel that the narrator knows the outcome. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you have to suspend your disbelief, of course, when you read something in the present tense because of a memoir in the present tense because, of course, of course the author knows how it ends. But you are lulled into the illusion that you're taking the trip with the narrator and learning things as she learns them. And, and I thought it would make for a better story and reading experience to do it that way. But I discovered fairly quickly the limitations of writing in the present tense, which was that everything that I know now really didn't belong in the book or what I had learned since then. It could infuse the choices that I made, but my consciousness as a character in the book was limited to who I was in 2000, who was, in fact, a very different person than who I am now because of that journey we made and everything that came after. So that was a little bit tricky trying to figure that out as I wrote and uh, be true to who I was in 2000 rather than who I am today. That's really interesting because, um, yeah, when you're writing about 
something that happened long ago, you have to put yourself back into that mind frame as well. And if if you're writing, say, a memoir about something that, you know, was just life-changing, traumatic, whatever, you have to be there again. That's exactly right. You have to relive it, but you also have to re-inhabit the consciousness and, and a, a prior consciousness, which is very hard to do. I had to stop myself when I was writing and think, okay, well, how would how would I have perceived that then? Not not what I think about it now, but how would I have experienced it then? And it helped that I'd kept a journal on that trip, so I did have some of my thoughts from that time that I was able to put in the book. And starting with those, I was able to recreate a simulation of who I was, which is really the best you can do in memoir anyway. What's your process then? I mean, are you are you a writer that needs to get down the whole draft, kind of barrel through it, or, or do you perfect each page, each paragraph as you go? I know, I'm the latter. I, I really admire people who can write a messy first draft and then go back and revise it. I'm too much of a perfectionist to write like that. I, I write in a very linear way. I make outlines, and I'm I'm happy to change them as I go along and uh, as the story calls for, but I need a blueprint from the beginning. And when I wrote along the way with Martin and Emilio, we actually storyboarded the whole book because they were familiar with storyboarding mm-hmm. from film, mm-hmm. and I found it very useful. I took a big whiteboard and index cards and magnets and just you know put all the scenes up on the board, and then we were able to rearrange them and move them around, take some off, put new ones on to get the shape of the book that we all that we all liked and thought it should be. But um, I write it pretty linear, actually. Um, my stories aren't always linear, but I, I create the outline, and then I go from first chapter to last in my outline. I might sometimes skip ahead a chapter or two and then come back, but I tend to try to write from A to Z, and that's because I like sending my editor chapters as I write. I find it easier to revise as I go than to give the editor a whole manuscript and then be faced with a formidable editing job or to discover they don't think the book works at all. I'd rather know that when I'm only three or four chapters in. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, since we're sort of at the end of our time, um, how you write yourself out of difficult places? Um, you may be in a scene or in a section of, of your work that isn't working. Um do you take a break? Do you just turn to another project? Do you just stay in your seat until something changes? I mean, how do you deal with it? I go for a walk. I discovered this when I lived in New York City and I was writing my first book. I was in a very small apartment, and so I rented space in a place called the Writer's Room mm-hmm. down in Greenwich Village. And um, when I got stuck, I would just leave the desk and I would go walking in the city streets. And something about the rhythm of the left-right motion of my legs and my arms, you know, would do whatever it did to the hemispheres in my brain to help me solve a problem. And it became such an efficient solution, actually, that sometimes I would um, have the answer before I even hit the sidewalk. Hmm. And then I'd have to run back upstairs and get it down. But I find that walking is very helpful. And now I live in Los Angeles, and um, when I'm working on a book, I often drop my kids at the bus stop in the morning, go for a walk by the beach and um, walk for, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes, and, and then when I'm done, I have to um, I have to get to my computer pretty fast before I lose it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is something about that movement. It's uh, it's true. What, what about other books? Are you reading memoir while you're writing memoir, or do you read something totally different so that you're not influenced? I don't read memoir while I'm writing memoir um, because I don't want other people's voice or style mm-hmm. to get inside my head, but I'm often reading a lot as I'm writing because I'm researching. So when I was 
writing The Possibility of Everything, I was reading volumes of, of Mayan history and astronomy and cosmology to, you know, to ground the story in that time, that place and that culture. And when I wrote Along the Way, I, I read a book about Joseph Papp's public theater because Martin Sheen acted for Joseph Papp and, and other, and then books about Apocalypse Now, Eleanor Coppola's diaries. Mm-hmm. So I'm always reading as I'm writing, but it's usually supporting materials for whatever I'm working on. Mm. Well, it's been wonderful having you. Um, there's so much more to talk about, so uh, I hope we can do this again or have you down to uh, Orange County to, to visit our salon. I'll look forward to it. and Thank you so much for all you do on behalf of writers. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. That's Hope Edelman. Her book is um, that we're, well, so many books, but we are talking about along the way, The Journey of a Father and Son, um, which if you have any interest in Martin Sheen, um, and or Emilio Estevez and uh, um, the movie The Way. It's it's a wonderful book to pick up um, as well as just a really interesting m- memoir slash uh, biography. And um, she read from The Possibility of Everything, published in 2009, and she has a number of other things out. And we're at the end of our time again. Um, we have a salon coming up on June 5th down here in Orange County with fiction writers Pam Houston, Stacy Beerling, and Eric Puchner, who was, Puchner, who was on, um, the show maybe a year, year ago, something like that. You can find out about it if you go to, um, penonfire.com and click on Writer's Salon. So I'm going to leave you now. Until next time, here's a quote by St. Teresa of Avila, um, who said, Answered prayers cause more tears than those that remain unanswered. So until next time, thank you for listening to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. <laughs>